Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Amen. As we continue to worship this morning, let me invite you, let's take the Word of God, open the Word of God, and turn in the Word of God to Mark chapter 3. We've been working through kind of verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, working through the book of Mark. And here we come to Mark chapter 3 today. And as we come to Mark 3, we're going to come to another miracle on the Sabbath. And what we've established so far, if you've been with us, and, and what you need to know today is that Jesus has already established the absolute authority over all things. Right, there's nothing that does not fall under his power. Nothing does not fall under his authority. And he demonstrated that last week at the end of Mark 2 when he said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. There's nothing outside of his kingship. And when he declared himself Lord of the Sabbath, he also declared himself God at the same time. Right? That I am God. That I was there. That I was there at the beginning. I've always been there. In the Old Testament, we understand that, that God gave man a day to rest from work, to rejoice in worship. And then Jesus, who comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, he fulfills the Sabbath. And so what does that mean? Jesus is our rest. Right? We don't need a day, we need a Savior. Right? We, don't, we don't need time set aside, we need to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. He is our Sabbath rest, and so we don't work for salvation, now, we rest from the work of this world, and we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He fulfills the Sabbath day. And so we understand that in Hebrews 4, how that's explained to us so perfectly for us to understand who he is and what he's done for us. And so we kind of establish that you will be restless until you find your complete rest in Jesus. You will always be restless until you find your rest in Christ. And so here, we're going to see a confrontation so that he can invite us to come to him. So let's stand, if you will, with me for the reading of the word of God today. Mark chapter 3, we're going to cover the first six verses here this morning. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. This has kind of been his pattern. He's already done this once before. And it says, and a man was there, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask God to write its eternal truth on our hearts as we submit and surrender to his authority today. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to worship you, Jesus, for what you have done, what you are still doing, and God, what you will do for the glory of your own name. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that your eternal word will be written upon us. Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus that what we don't know you will teach, what we don't have, God, you'll give, and who we are not, make us for your glory and to your image. Speak, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name that we pray. And God's church says today, amen. Amen. You may find your seat. You may find your Mark Scripture Journal. You can also find the backside of your worship God as we walk together through the Word. 
And as you're finding those things, let me just go ahead and get this out of the way. I realize that a man like me preaching a passage like this can bring up a lot of questions, right? I get it. All right, I'm here, and this may be the best sermon you ever heard or the most disappointing sermon you ever heard because you're like, what now, John? Have you ever tried stretching out your hand? Like, what are you going to do about that? I get that, right? I get that, and I realize that, and I've got a lot of identification here with this man in this passage besides the fact that perhaps I just have never stretched it out, right? And so if you're here, you don't know who I am first time. I was born this way. It's the way I was born. I don't know if this would be described as a withered hand or just a little short-handed. Either way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Either way, we have a man here with a disability that God is going to use for glory, right? That God's going to use for glory because what this man has taught me and what Christ has taught me is that I don't need everything to be used by God. That God doesn't require everything from me as far as my talents and abilities. He just requires me in surrender. And so we understand that God can do a whole lot more with a whole lot less than you can with all of it. Right? God can do a whole lot more, the whole lot less than you can with all of it. He doesn't need all the talent in the world. He doesn't need all the giftings in the world. He just needs all of you. And when he has all of you, he can do amazing things. And that's this man's story, and that's been my story. And so, again, let's have some fun today. Let's realize what the Word of God says. But we're going to study the Scripture and see what it means for us because there's a couple different things happening in this text, in this one confrontational moment. And so we have two different sides of people. We have the man with the hand, and we have the Pharisees. And the first thing I want you to see in the text is that hypocrisy, hypocrisy always hardens your heart. All right, it's hypocrisy that will always harden your heart. We're going to walk through the word in verse 1. It says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. So here we are in the synagogue, we're on the Sabbath day, that's the Jewish Saturday, they're there, that's the day that they were to rest from work, again, rejoice in worship. So we're on the Sabbath, and Jesus comes in, and the Gospel of Luke tells us in this account that he's teaching. So he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching the Word of God, he's teaching salvation, right, he, he's teaching the Gospel, forgiveness of sin, repentance, right, that was the Gospel that he brought, faith, how to come all the way to God. And remember, as we saw Mark already. They've never heard anyone teach like this before. No one has ever taught with the authority that Jesus teaches with. And among those who have gathered for worship, gathered to hear this man teach, is a man with a disability, and it says he has a withered hand. Now, we don't know why he was born this way. We don't know if there was an accident. We don't understand. There's no context. It just means this. His hand was disabled. It wasn't functional. He wasn't able to use it. And y'all can probably identify with different things in your life that you're not able to use or, or may have questions about how these things can work together. But Luke, the Gospel of Luke, again, this account specifies it was his right hand. All right, so it was his right hand, and we can only assume, or really just you, the challenges that he faced, right? He couldn't do the monkey bars, I bet. That's what I can't do, right? He had to learn how to tie his sandals by himself, right? There's things he had to learn how to do by himself because he was with a withered hand. And so he's a man, with a very public and a very obvious, very external need. That being said, it's not life-threatening. Right, it's not a life-threatening need. It's, it's healing doesn't have to happen here on the spot. It doesn't have to happen in a synagogue, and it certainly doesn't have to happen on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus could have waited until Monday to heal this man. 
right? This was a, a disability. This was a deformity. This was something that could have easily been postponed from the Sabbath. But Jesus comes in on the Sabbath, and he heals this man on the Sabbath. And you go, why, Jesus? Why would you heal this man on the Sabbath day, knowing all the different rules and regulations the Pharisees had come up with? And it's very simple. He was here because he's Lord of the Sabbath, but he's also here to expose their hypocrisy. All right, he's exposing their hypocrisy. As it says in verse 2, and they, the Pharisees, they watched Jesus. What were they watching for? To see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The irony here, right, is that these men who had given their lives over to protect, preserve, honor all their rigid extra-biblical traditions, and yet they desperately wanted Jesus to break their rules, right? They want the rules, but we're waiting for him to break them. We want the things in place. Don't you come against our traditions, but we are waiting for you to mess up. And so they're here to see what he's going to do. They're watching him to see if they can trap him. And again, when you go back to the Old Testament, the Sabbath, it's very simple. God only said one thing about the Sabbath day. When he gave his law to his people, he says, you are to rest from your regular work. That's it. There were no other narrowing stipulations. There was nothing else that they were called to do. It says, you just rest, rejoice in me, enjoy the life that I have given you with my very own breath. But the Pharisees, these religious men, they added traditions. They took tradition and added it on top of God's truth and produced this form of legalism. And one of those restrictions prevented you from helping someone. You couldn't help your neighbor. All right, that would require you making work. It would require effort. And so they had this stipulation in place that you could not help a person in need. The only time you could help a person in need is if they were bleeding out and you needed to cover their wound and, and to protect them from literally dying on the Sabbath day. That was it. It was forbidden. In fact, in Matthew 12, Jesus exposes them. He says, hey, you on the Sabbath, y'all will save a, a lamb. You'll, you'll save your livestock, but you won't help a person. What, what kind of rules are these? What are y'all coming up with? Where do you come up with these things? So he exposes their hypocrisy, and these men are watching Jesus so carefully because they want Jesus to break their rules. And even though this man hasn't even asked for anything, he's just there in the crowd. Jesus stops teaching. And he calls him out in verse 3. He says, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now here's the question. Who is really on God's side here? Right, who is really loving and living out God's law? Who's really holding God's word in high esteem and being obedient to what God has called them to do? Who really wants to live out God's will? And it's no contest. Right? It's no contest. These men aren't even obeying God's word. They're adding to God's word. And this situation isn't even remotely complicated. It's a no-brainer. In fact, they knew the word. They knew God had a whole lot to say about doing good. But they, again, they sacrificed the truth of God for the tradition of man. It's easy. Isaiah 
talks about, Isaiah chapter 1 talks about how we do this all the time. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the well-fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. No, when you come to appear before me, here's how you're going to come. Who has required of you this trampling of my courts, bring me no more vain offerings. Incense and it's abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. God is opposing those things. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. What is it? Your hands are full of blood, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. In other words, their hypocritical Sabbath rules made God sick. They were all about the motions. But God, look how well we perform. I mean, we're doing all the things that you require us to do, and we're, yeah, adding on to it, but God, we are doing what you require, and God says, I don't care about the outside, I care about the inside, right? I don't care about your religious feast. If you're doing the wrong heart, if you're here just to check off a box, if you're here just because you want to play church, if you're here because you think it's going to make me happy, oh, thank you, John, for coming to church today, then you've missed it. Right? This is not pleasing to me. What's pleasing to me is that you do it with a heart for me, that you would do it in a way that would bring me glory. And so their Sabbath, their rules, their tradition, they made God sick, and they were left silent. Silent. And what are they going to say? To this question he asked, what are they going to say? If they say it's lawful to do good and save a life, then they can't accuse Jesus. They can't condemn Jesus. They would only affirm all the things that he does as good and right. And they don't want to do that. But on the other hand, if they say it is lawful and, and it is evil to do evil and to kill, then they would affirm their own evil hearts and they would affirm their own sin. And so they stay silent and they condemn themselves. They condemn themselves. Now, I just want to challenge you with this text right here as we think about our, the application that comes. Don't miss your moments for ministry. Right, don't miss your moments for ministry. The difference between Jesus and the Pharisees, it could not be more obvious, right? Jesus comes to a place of worship, he comes to church, and he sees a man with a withered hand, he's filled with compassion, and he moves to meet that need, right? Jesus shows up and he wanted to see the man restored. He wanted to help the man, he wanted to see the man come to reconciliation. But the Pharisees, they come to the synagogue, they come to church, and they don't even see the man at all. Right, they completely gloss over him. They don't see a need. They're not here to minister to people. No, they're here to make sure everyone's obeying the rules. They're there to make sure that they're keeping all the traditions alive. They're there to catch Jesus in a trap. It's incredible the difference between Jesus and these Pharisees. And that's why, church, we have to be so passionate about who we are as the people of God. That we're called to love the great commandment, live out the great commission, lead one more person to Jesus. We want to be people and be a church that shows up to love God, love others, and live that out like Jesus. Don't miss your moments for ministry. We don't want to show up and see a problem. We want to be like Jesus, show up and see people, right? See how we can meet needs. And so I want to challenge you with this thought, show up. 
looking for the people that God would have you love. All right, show up looking to, to love the people that God would have for you here. Come looking to meet needs. Look to pray with someone. Look to encourage someone. You have no idea what someone's going through, what their story is, but show up looking for an opportunity to see someone restored in Christ. That was something that when I was a youth pastor, I would always challenge our students and say, hey, um, guys, and this is here at New Life Baptist back in the other building, and I, I would have my, my group there, and I'm like, hey, guys, listen, I see some new students around the room. I've met them, but you need to go meet them too. I was trying to always constantly make them aware of others in the room, right? We're not here for you. We're here for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we're here for others. Like, love God, love others. That's what we're called to do. And that's something I try to do even still as pastor. And sometimes I can't when I'm baptizing, but I try to work around the room and make sure I meet you. If you're new here, I want to meet you, and I want to know your name, and I want to memorize it. Right? That's my goal, because I want to come here and see God and see people. I'm not here for me. I'm not here for my preferences. I'm not here for my priorities. I'm here to worship King Jesus and to make sure I see everybody else come and join the course, right? And so church family, just as a practical application, when you show up, look for people. Say, I've never met you before. What's your name? Hey, uh, you're new here today. How can I show you around the building? What can I do to make you feel more included in the family? We're not consumers. We're contributors, Right, we're contributors. So we see, first of all, that hypocrisy, when you're filled with it, it hardens your heart to the things of God. The second thing is this, but God works in your weakness. All right, God works in your weakness. It says in verse 5, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And what happened? He stretched it out. His hand was restored, and the Pharisees, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So who were the Herodians? They were people who wanted to see the, the glory of Rome through Herod come back to life, right? They were there to preserve the glory of Rome. They were not Jews. They were not people who were lined up with the Pharisees. They were actually enemies of the Jews because they were all about Rome. But somehow the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so they've come together and they've tried to say, all right, how can we stop this man who might even cause a lot of problems in the Roman Empire, let alone the Pharisees and all their religious structures? They said, we got to stop him. So they come together. That's what's happening in that verse. But we have this man. And Jesus looked around at all the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Not even our sin stops the Savior. Here's what I love about that, because this is a showdown. All right, just imagine the tension right here. All right, imagine the tension. Nobody is saying a word, and Jesus is looking around the room, staring at those men one by one. Staring at them, filled with, with righteous anger. This is the only direct mention of Jesus being angry in the New Testament. Yes, we have the temple, and he flips the temple tables over. Right? He restores and cleans out the temple from all of its sin. But this is the direct, literal time it tells that he was angry. And of course, it's perfect, righteous anger. He's the perfect son of God. And what is he angry about? What is he angry at? He's angry at their unbelief. He's angry at their pride. He's angry at their hypocrisy. He's angry at the hardness of their heart. He's angry that they have no compassion. I want you to notice in the gospel, when you go and read the gospel accounts, Jesus only gets angry with one group of people, the religious. He never gets angry with the sinners. 
Right? He has compassion for them. He's the friend of sinners. He's come to meet the sinner's needs by being the Savior. They had no concern for God. They had no concern for their neighbor. And they completely disregarded the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then the second is equal, to love your neighbor as yourself. They had no uh, authority over them that would imply that they would do those things. But not only is Jesus angry with their sin, it says he's grieved over their sin. And what does that mean? He's angry at their unbelief. But fully man, fully God, knowing all things, he's also grieved at the consequence of their sin. Right? He's grieved. He's grieved because these men stand guilty. These men stand condemned to hell. And Jesus, desiring that all should come to repentance, he takes no pleasure in seeing sinners dying and going to hell. But then Jesus turns his attention back to the man, and what does he do? He heals him on the Sabbath. He says, stretch out your hand. Verse 5, he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I love the way Jesus does this. He heals the man in such a way that what? Everyone there could see the healing. Right? Everyone there could see it. It's obvious. I don't know what it would look like. I would imagine me. I have a little baby hand right here. I've got five little fingers, all right? Um, it's, I just call it the big hand, the baby hand. It's just the easiest way to explain that. And, and I imagine it would just kind of start growing, right? And just start stretching out. It, it'd be wild. If you could see that, that'd be crazy, right? And now you're on the edge of your seat, all right, hoping it's going to happen. But I don't know. <laughs> Everyone could see it. Everyone watched this man who had no hand now have a hand. Everyone watched this man who had a withered hand have a full hand. It was a miracle. It was amazing. No one had ever seen anything like this before. And so this was the moment everyone should have considered possibly, could he be the Savior? Is he actually who he says he is? Is Jesus the Messiah? Because faith often comes alive when the undeniable meets the unexplainable. And so we have the undeniable. It's undeniable because everyone could see the healing, and it's unexplainable because they've never seen healing before. What do you mean they've never seen healing before? This was new. No one had ever done the things that Jesus was doing. In fact, healing was a direct promise, prophecy in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 35 makes it plain and clear that he was the Messiah who was to come because he was the one who would heal. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened when he comes, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. You can see those miracles in the Gospels. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. We also see that. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. And no one had ever done the things that Jesus was doing and it's obvious. These men who know the word of God, they should have been like, this is a sign. But instead of embracing Jesus, they want to eliminate Jesus. And so they plot to kill him. I mean, we're barely three chapters in in Mark, and they're ready to kill the guy, right? This is where we are. They already want Jesus gone. But I, I want to be very serious for a moment when I see the text before us, and I see these Pharisees, and I see how easy it is to play church. You cannot avoid your accountability. You cannot avoid your accountability. Jesus was grieved, filled with anger, but at the same time, simultaneously, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. The bad news in this room is that every single one of us, we all deserve hell. Romans would tell us, not a single one of us in this room are righteous, no, not one. On your best day, 
your good deeds are as filthy rags. They don't amount to anything. Not a single one of us here can, can escape our own brokenness. Not a single one of us here can escape our own sin. Not a single one of us here can escape our own depravity. Somehow think that we can become good on our own. We, none of us can do those things without salvation from God. And so every sinner, as we see in this text, every sinner is guilty for his own sin. And every single person will be held responsible for rejecting Jesus, and they will go to hell for their unbelief. Right? That's where these men will stand. They will stand rejected because they rejected the invitation. But the gospel, Jesus is preaching good news. He says, I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come for the people who don't need me. I came for the sick. Right? I came for the sinner. This is good news because for those who repent of their sin, for those who believe in Christ, we know our sin can be forgiven. Our sin can be fully forgotten. The good news, there's only good news though, when it's accepted, has to be received. So I can preach and I can tell and I can proclaim that you have good news, but only when it is accepted in place of the bad news can it be actually realized in your life. But I want to tell you this, if you turn away from the invitation of Jesus Christ, there's nowhere else for you to go. There's no other way for you to get to forgiveness. There's no other way for you to get to eternal life. There's no way for you to get to heaven. It is only through the work of Jesus Christ. And so I would just challenge you this. Here this morning, he might be looking at you, looking at your hypocrisy, looking at your sin, looking at your rebellion, looking at your rejection. And that's an invitation for you to say, yeah, you see me and you've exposed me. I'm going to repent. All right, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Repent. All right, church, you, you don't have to leave here condemned. You can leave here changed. All right, you don't have to leave here in your sin and shame. You can walk out of here in salvation, right? It is good news, but you have to come. So here's the take home for us. We're just covering a small passage today, but I, I want to see what, what's the big picture for us, the, the takeaway. And I, I want this to be the theme that we see right here. Your problems position you to display God's power. Right, your problems position you to display God's power. Here's what I love about the story. Jesus used the one thing that the man could not use himself. He couldn't use his hand. He had no function. It says in the text it was disabled. It says in the text that it was not able to be used. We, he, he, Jesus uses the one thing, the man, that, that he could not use himself. For the glory of God, this man's weakness became his worship. Became worship. And I love that God can take things that we would never use. I love that God would ask us to do things that we could never do on our own. And I love that God can use anything in our lives to show Christ to others through us. Right? He's showing Christ. He's showing the power of the gospel through this man with the withered hands. Now here's what we tend to do. We tend to cover our weaknesses up. No, 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 you can't see that. That's behind the curtain. Right? That, that's the, the privacy wall here. That, there's a firewall. You can't get past that. that. That is off limits. No one even knows about that. I'm taking those things to my grave because we don't want people to know we're weak. We don't want people to see our struggles. We don't want people to know that we have sufferings. And we certainly don't want God to use them publicly, right? How dare God expose me? How dare God use a testimony in my life? We don't want that. We're too polished to have problems, right? We like to polish things up, make them look real, real nice. 
instead of having actual problems. But without, see this, without this obvious weakness, this man would have not been used in that service. All right, without that obvious weakness, that man would have never been used by God. This disability positioned him to be used. His weakness became, in God's hands, his perfect strength. All right, his was for use for healing, but, but yours can be used for anything. And so as we internally kind of reflect upon this application, I want you to understand God's strength, according to the word of God in 2 Corinthians, God's strength is always made perfect in your weaknesses. Always. It is always made perfect in your weaknesses. And we all have something in our lives that God can use to display his power in us. We all have something that God can use to display his power through us. And here's the application. All you got to do is stretch it out. Here it is, God. Here's this story that I need to tell to tell people about the goodness of Jesus Christ, how you saved me from this. God, here's this very obvious external weakness. And God, I want to stretch that thing out to you in surrender and saying, God, use it for your glory. That's been my story. Maybe it's something external. Maybe it's something internal. I don't know what your story is, but I know this. He says, stretch it out. Stretch it out. Give it to me. My life is an altar. My life is an offering. God, all I have, all I have is yours. And God, I'm going to give it to you in complete surrender so that your glory may be seen in me. Your glory may be seen through me. How can God use you? And what can God do through you? It's amazing what he can do when we are in stretched surrender. Amen. We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.